Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Assistant Professor of Italian Maggie Fritz Morkin. In our conversation, Professor Fritz Morkin discusses her research on medieval Italian literature and its connections to the current COVID pandemic. I guess to start off, how are you doing in general? I know it's been kind of rough a few weeks on top of everything else, but... Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a difficult period. I mean, I, the COVID transition sort of started out a little rough. I have a, a seven-year-old who I was teaching first grade from home while also yeah. teaching PhD yeah. students and, right. and doing dissertation defenses. And, uh, and so that was... You know, that it just, it really slowed down the kind of the research and writing process for me. It was kind of, um, that's been on hold, but miraculously he's now in summer camp. So I, oh, wow. Getting okay. back to my scholarly work, which is um, a relief and exciting. And this is a really fascinating moment to be working in for a number of reasons. I think, you know, Boccaccio's Decameron is, is, uh, it's set in the middle of the bubonic plague pandemic oh, okay. and he he sort of begins the work with this long observation of how all of the kind of all of the social bonds just disintegrate um, and it's it's this kind of unbelievable spectacle of horror watching um, watching cities stop functioning and watching parents and children not able to care for each other anymore typically when you think of studying medieval literature you don't think of these one-to-one uh, comparisons between what we're going through and, and the stuff you're reading. Yeah, I think that's, that is absolutely true. And of course, there are some major differences between medieval Florence that had this plague pandemic in 1348 and our social situation now, but the parallels are incredibly striking, especially kind of thinking about how in, in plague time, especially government workers and religious leaders are not really doing the, the tasks that normally fall to them as institutional um, leaders and managers. And so the kind of all of the activity of the city stops and people kind of shelter in place or they're, they're sick mm -hmm. and caretaking and um, institutional medicine stops working in the way you expect it to. Mm. So that's, that's been a really interesting moment. And then, you know, it, it, with the second part of our kind of, of our social upheaval right now, this kind of intense focus on Black Lives Matter and on the role of the police, um, it's, it's kind of made me realize that, that Cameron, one of the things that it does um, is that it shows a world where social norms are not enforced by police, right? This is, mm, first yeah, we watch the kind of the crumbling of the city and we watch the crumbling of the, you know, the, the sort of the city officials who are um, policing the streets, who are collecting taxes at the at the gates of the city, who are um, making sure that the urban sanitation is functional, making sure that people are buried and conveyed to um, graveyards in the right way. All of those people are gone, and so you know what happens when when our um, you know, our sort of public services just aren't there. And then they, you know, we have these young noble storytellers who go off into the countryside and they tell all these stories about, um, about people using their wits and their, um, their kind of social acumen to, 
um, to sort of promote the social values that are important. And I think that towards the end of the Decameron, the seventh day, eighth day, ninth day, we get many, many tales of pranks where, um, where these kind of uh, these painters with their street smarts, Bruno and Bufalmaco, they are pulling pranks on people who aren't conforming to the social norms that are kind of necessary to make a city cohere together. So yeah. there's um, a physician who is um, incredibly selfish and narcissistic and doesn't have any generosity, doesn't, um, doesn't, uh, isn't generous with his kind of, with his money, with his privilege. Um, he he just kind of shows his greed and desire to acquire more things. Um, he becomes the target repeatedly of um, of pranks by um, these kind of these poor painters who are who are able to kind of police um, social relations in a much better way than than any officials could. So there's no police force in the Decameron. I'm kind of chewing on this idea of whether or not we can read it as a what happens when society defunds the police. How do yeah. we get along and how do we all live together in harmony and with shared values? Wow, that's cool. Are you teaching any courses this summer? I'm not. I'm really okay. happy to be back to um, to research and writing. I'm currently finishing up um, I'm finishing up a book on obscenity and authority in mm-hmm. in medieval Italian literature. And uh, right now I'm kind of having an uh, having a good time working on a chapter that looks at competing theories of debt that Boccaccio sort of lays out. And he's especially interested in how people negotiate um, sexual debt and erotic obligations. And he uses that. Mm. Um, My argument is that he chooses problems of sexual obligation because this is one place where women get to participate in the negotiation, right? So the world of business is overwhelmingly uh, a male world in Boccaccio's time. Fourteenth century Florence, okay. and um, and yet that there there are other models. So there's there's a mercantile model of exchange, right, where two parties agree to exchange goods for money or services for money, and that's kind of one model of debt. I give you the thing, and then pay me the money, and that requires the input of both parties. Now there are other sort of models that also kind of models of debt and obligation that govern sexual exchanges, right? So Mm -hmm. one of those is this notion of the conjugal debt. And Paul in the New Testament, in his letters in the New Testament, sort of frames this in economic terms. He says that that, um, husbands and wives each owe this debt to the other. And that what governs sexual relations between a husband and wife, each spouse must provide sexual intercourse like on demand of the other spouse so when and uh, he and paul actually calls it fraud when spouses won't pay because it's something that's owed one to the other which is also a kind of a strange model of sexuality and consent right we get yeah there's still echoes of that you'll hear echoes of that in certain um parts of society i've heard stuff like that you know it's kind of amazing to hear that that doesn't seem that ridiculous just hearing the way some people talk about their relationships with other folks or their partners or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, the, in the in the Middle Ages, kind of this was this was a real question of, of um, you know thinking about consent and sexuality based on Paul's sort of discussion about you know when about consent and sexuality. Uh, lots of 
kind of medieval canon lawyers and jurists sort of, um, when they talk about consent, they're not talking about, yes, being willing to engage in sexual intercourse. The consent, it seems to be more likely attached to the person who wants to withdraw from sexual relations for a time. So Gratian collects some advice that says that spouses need to get the explicit permission and consent of their partner in order to take a break from, from the bedroom. As a medieval scholar, and you focus on Italy, what drew you or what inspired you to follow that as a uh, scholarly pursuit? Oh, wow. I think I have to go all the way back to my sophomore year of college when I just randomly enrolled in a Dante course. Okay. Um, I was curious and I, I was blown away by just sort of the, the complicated architecture of the Divine Comedy, which seemed to me knit together in this impossibly tight knot and contain this kind of uh, replica of the entire universe, right? It, it has a literary history built into it. We've got Dante's sort of take on classical literature, especially Virgil in the, in the Aeneid, but also an entire catalog of all, basically all of the literature that he knows. But it also includes um, a lot of political critique of, of Florence, of other cities in um, northern and central Italy. Um, and it, it, he's also reviewing... Um, Aristotelian philosophy and mm. Thomistic theology. And he's trying to make the sort of representation of the moral world, you know, how we should be in the world, how we should relate to each other and how we should fashion our spirituality that accords with all of the authorities that he knows. So philosophical, theological, geographical, cosmological, it's, it's this just incredibly rich, um, rich text that has something for everyone. He's, he's got like the latest theories of optics that he uses um, in, in paradise that he, he sort of takes these metaphors of how light behaves and says that, that, you know, kind of divine love behaves more like light than like physical matter and moves in the same sorts of ways. Yeah. So I think I was, I was just amazed that so much could be contained in one book. And uh, Dante is a bit of a gateway drug from there. There's okay, got Petrarch yeah. <laughs> and, and so many others. So you'll be a faculty fellow at the Institute in the fall. Uh, can you talk about the project you plan to work on? Is this the same book that you're, you mentioned earlier or is this a new project? Or When I proposed the project, I proposed to start working on my second monograph, which is on um, sort of medieval, especially 14th century, 13th and 14th century Italian kind of uh, social history of fraud. I'm um, okay. really interested in, um, in, a, in the way that the culture is paying a lot of attention to fraud. And so my mm -hmm. sources are, I'm, I'm a trained literary historian, and so I'm really interested in the way that Dante um, kind of meticulously catalogs all of these different types of fraud. He names 14, but then there are some subcategories, even okay. among those 14 types. Um, but then I'm also interested in the way that Boccaccio sort of shows us uh, the pleasure of fraud and everything, how it can really be delightful and alluring when you see, um, when you see a prank or a, a scheme that, that works and how much we enjoy seeing that. So I'll be looking at literary sources, but also I will be looking at philosophical, theological, and legal resources and sources too. So um, I've been uh, just starting to look at a lot of statutes 
These are the kind of the, the municipal laws governing Italian cities. And this is something that I plan to read a lot more of um, yeah. between now and, and in the fellowship period. It's kind of mm -hmm. looking at the way that you know, municipal governments talk about fraud in their kind of in their city ordinances. So we'll see that uh, places like Florence and Perugia and Siena all have uh, officials who are hired or elected or appointed who are specifically tasked with looking for fraud and discovering it and then okay. uh, kind of putting a stop to fraudulent use of resources. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think especially in democracies and uh, representative governments, which was the sort of government form in these little city-states in Northern Italy, um, democracy really, uh, sorry, not democracy, let's say representative government, and uh, especially when it's heavily bureaucratic, has so many opportunities for fraud. And that's why these cities kind of codify a response to it within their, their legal codes. So I'll be looking at legal codes, but then also going back even to early Christian thinkers like St. Augustine, who writes a couple treatises, um, first as a young man, a treatise that he calls On Lying, and then a second treatise that he writes about 30 years later called Against Lying. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, they both sort of cover the same ground, more or less. Like you don't have first a pro lying and, and, and then I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you know, I, I first read these texts with undergraduates here, and I was so amazed at how easily UNC students were connecting Augustine's kind of obscure, and I thought it would be a pretty boring treatise, but I had a student make a really beautiful argument about, uh, she was arguing that Augustine would say that um, undercover police investigations are immoral, unethical oh, yeah. and ineffective and she was able to offer a critique set based in kind of very old sort of philosophically constructed ideas that police should never or like investigations should never involve this kind of undercover activity because it taints the quality of the evidence and it also taints the moral position of the investigator. In reference to those municipal documents and things like that, how do you access those? Are they digitized? And I'm just thinking of like, folks are going to have to do, whether you're a graduate student or a professor or I guess an autodidact or something like that, your access to certain materials are really limited. So I was just curious, you know, you have these old documents, city documents from, you know, 14th century Italy. How do you right. get to those? I feel very lucky in that a lot of the medieval Italian statutes from, from the municipalities of Florence, Bologna, Perugia, Siena, they, there are modern editions. And so, mm. oh, okay. and so I, I may be able to access those. We don't have so many of them here at UNC's library, but they do exist. I may be able to get them on interlibrary loan. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, there are certainly archival portions of this project, which I hope to be able to complete in the next few years. Uh, those will include um, looking at some cases, so going in and looking at complaints of specific instances of fraud and how those were managed and dealt with um, in, in court. Okay. So that's something that I can't quite do from here, but I can at least get a start looking at the language that cities used in talking about fraud as they laid forth their expectations for the city and for the, the way in which the government was structured and executed. 
I feel say another really interesting thing about about these medieval laws is that um, starting in the late 13th century, they were some cities were starting to record them in vernacular Italian. Oh, okay. Also, you know, it says a lot about who was participating in government. They weren't mm -hmm. necessarily trained in um, in Latin. And they came from the professions, they came from noble families. And so it's suddenly the, the documents of governance are more accessible linguistically. It makes sense, but I wouldn't have thought of it that the all these documents are still in, in Latin. <laughs> so certain people couldn't be, weren't able to read them. So this is a question we ask all our guests. What's a book that changed your life? Dante's Divine Comedy absolutely changed my life. I never would have walked into this profession had I not had this profound encounter with such a meticulously crafted gem of a work. Mm -hmm. You know, as a, as a young graduate student, Erwin Panofsky's uh, Gothic Architecture and Scholasticism taught me to read books and objects in a way that I just didn't know how to do before. So he traces the way that the architecture of medieval cathedrals replicates the structure of, or the same kind of structuring principles that are present in literary works too. Oh. So in the you know, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, there's uh, medieval writers love to kind of encode order and structure into their works. So maybe they'll have three parts and they'll have textural features that are something like columns that holding up, yeah. you know, like Dante's Vita Nova has long poems interspersed at very regular intervals that sort of okay. make this kind of almost like a, a cathedral that you're walking into. Mm -hmm. and again, something like the Divine Comedy, right? It has these three parts and then is also subdivided into a hundred different parts. And these are sort of, they're not only structural, but they're also conceptual. So Dante structures his ideas in the same way. And um, I, I think, you know, I'm not a trained art historian, but this also taught me to take meaning out of the structural principles that you can see in, in architecture. Yeah, yeah. I guess you could see that too in the fact that a lot of these early medieval works were in poetry form, the epic poems, and there, there's that structure and meter and all of that. And yeah, that's great. That's cool. Well, thank you very much, Maggie. And um, yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks for reaching out, Philip. It's been a pleasure to hear how you're doing in this COVID period. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing okay, but yeah, it could be better. <laughs> Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.